Well, if you have your Bibles with you once again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. You'll find it on page 1050 in the Pew Bible. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through this section of the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, we're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 21 in verse 23. I want to speak today for a few minutes on this subject, a question of authority. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23. And this is what the Word of God says. And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. In the first half of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus performed three symbolic actions. First, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey to the shouts of the praise of the crowds, presenting himself as Israel's true king and messiah. Second, he cleansed the temple, restoring it to its God-given function as a house of prayer. And third, he cursed the fig tree as a symbol of God's coming judgment on the nation for its failure to produce spiritual fruit. Now, after cursing the fig tree, the Bible says that Jesus entered the temple once again. And upon entry, the chief priest and the elders of the people approached him and began to question him regarding his authority to perform all of these actions. Authority is a main theme in the Gospel of Matthew. For instance, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And in Matthew chapter 8, the centurion acknowledged Jesus' authority, comparing it to his own authority as a military commander. And he said to Jesus, only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And then in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus healed the paralyzed man. And Jesus says that he did it, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And the Bible says, and the people glorified God who had given such authority to men. Moreover, here in chapter 21, the word authority occurs four different times. Twice on the lips of Jesus' accusers and twice in Jesus' response to them. But the most important occurrence of the word is at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew in the Great Commission where Jesus says, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew has, and Matthew will continue to make it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is king of the Jews, that he is the Christ, that he is the promised Messiah that the entire Old Testament pointed to. And as king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus has authority, and he wields that authority for the good of his people, for the accomplishment of his father's will, for the advancing of his kingdom, and for his glory. Therefore, even though you and I live in a time when authority is often abused and misused, we can trust Jesus and we can submit to his authority. And so on this subject of authority, would you notice with me, first of all, in verse 23, the dispute. Matthew says, And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And so after Jesus and his disciples passed the fig tree that he cursed the day before and found it withered away to its roots, Jesus entered the temple and he began teaching. Now we are not told, you'll notice in the text, the content of Jesus' teaching. But in his account, Luke says that Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and he was preaching the gospel. And this is the message that Jesus proclaimed at the very beginning of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, Matthew writes, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the same message that Jesus continued to proclaim throughout his ministry. And in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, the Bible says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. The gospel of the kingdom is the message that Jesus ended his ministry with, and it is the message that he entrusted to his disciples. And Luke records this in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so while Jesus was teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the chief priests and the elders interrupted him and asked him a question. Now, both Mark and Luke and their accounts state that the scribes were also among this group. The chief priests involved in this group were the former high priests. They were members of priestly families, and they were mostly Sadducean. While the elders of the people comprised a wide variety of religious leaders that included Pharisees and scribes and potentially Sadducees and Herodians and even some zealots, and although all of these different groups and factions didn't agree on everything, they all found common ground in hating Jesus and wanting to destroy him. Jesus threatened their authority. Jesus threatened their power. And so here we see that the chief priest and the elders of the people, together with the scribes, all come together, making up the Sanhedrin who had authority for maintaining order in civil and religious affairs, come to him and interrupt him as he is proclaiming the gospel and teaching the people. And Matthew says in verse 23, you'll notice that they came up to Jesus as he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority. 
Now, these were the same kind of questions that they asked Jesus in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry when he cleansed the temple there. And the phrase, these things that they use, you'll notice is plural. And it suggests that their questions to Jesus encompass everything that Jesus has said and done in the temple. His expulsion of the merchants and the money changers, all of his miraculous works, his acceptance of the children's praises to him, and his present teaching. And you'll notice in verse 23 that the issue or the subject behind their questions and their interruptions of Jesus is that of authority. Now you need to understand what's happening here with these questions. There was widespread abuse in those days surrounding the ordination of rabbis. And in order to control rabbinical authority, the Sanhedrin, the chief priest and the elders and the scribes, they had taken over all the responsibilities of the ordination of rabbis. And as a result, these religious leaders were keenly aware that they never ordained Jesus as a rabbi. And that Jesus had no credentials or any kind of religious authority that had been granted to them to him by them. And so they ask him, who gave you this authority to do these things? They wanted to know the name of the rabbi that Jesus studied under. They wanted to know the name of the rabbi who had given him authority to do the things that he was doing. J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on Matthew, says they want Jesus' diploma. They want, if you will, friends, his seminary degree. But what the chief priest and the elders of the people failed to realize is that Jesus' ministry from beginning to end was completely authoritative. He demonstrated authority to grant those who believe in him the right to become the children of God. His heavenly Father gave him authority to execute judgment and authority over all mankind to give eternal life to those his Father has given him. He had authority over his own life to lay it down. He had authority over his resurrection to raise his life up again. Jesus had complete authority from beginning to end. And in spite of all of his authority, and in spite of all of his authoritative acts, the religious elite failed to identify Jesus properly, and they were blinded to his power. Now, you need to understand in verse 23 that this was not a casual confrontation. Their animosity toward Jesus had been simmering, and now... It was boiling over. They felt threatened by Jesus, and they saw his actions as undermining their authority. And so, the dispute began. But we not only see the dispute, we see secondly in verses 24 to 27, the dilemma. And notice what Matthew writes. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now you'll notice in verse 24 that Jesus uses a common rabbinic device of responding to a question with a question. Illustrating the principle of Proverbs 26 and verse 5, which says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so Jesus was meeting them at their foolish level. Then you'll notice in verse 25 that Jesus poses his twofold question regarding John the Baptist, saying, The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now, Jesus' question put the religious leaders in a dilemma. 
And you'll notice in the text that it exposed something about them. This is very, very important to see in the text. And if you read it too quickly, you'll miss what is highlighted in the religious leaders' lives by Jesus' question. His question to them put them in a dilemma, and it exposed, look carefully, their unbelief and their fear of man. Now, John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Testament age. And like Jesus, John was very popular among the people. He came from God, readying the people for the Messiah, and his demeanor and the content and the power of his preaching had a great impact throughout Israel. After Herod arrested John for condemning his adulterous marriage to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, the king hesitated for a long time in putting John to death because he was so popular among the people, they considered him a prophet, and the king was afraid of an uprising. Now, you'll notice Jesus refers to the baptism of John in his question. This phrase refers to John's entire ministry, and it's characterized by his baptism of those who had repented of their sins. And so Jesus, in his question, and in taking the religious leaders back to the ministry of John the Baptist, was reminding them what John had testified about. John had testified that he came as a witness to bear witness to the light. That Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that Jesus was the very Son of God. Therefore, don't miss this. To acknowledge that John's ministry was from heaven is to acknowledge that Jesus' ministry was from heaven. And that Jesus was the Messiah, the prophet from God. And if John was a prophet from heaven then the religious leaders would have to recognize both John's authority and Jesus' authority, none of which these leaders were willing to do. So notice what happens in verse 25. As the chief priest and the elders discussed Jesus' question among themselves, they realized that no matter how they responded, Jesus had them trapped. If they were to say from heaven, Jesus would then say to them, then why didn't you believe him? And don't you see, friends, that's the whole point of Jesus' question. Why didn't you believe? And his question exposed their unbelief. And his question really was his answer to their question in verse 23. Why do you have authority to do these things, and who gave you this authority? Well, my authority came from the same place of John's authority. Who do you say John is? Because whoever gave John his authority gave me mine. And why didn't you believe? But you'll notice in the text, on the other hand, if the religious leaders said that John's ministry was from man, they were afraid of the crowd, for the whole crowd held that John was a prophet. There's an echo of these words in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 46, where Matthew says this at the end of that parable that Jesus tells the religious leaders. They were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the crowds because they held Jesus as a prophet. It reminds me of this simple principle in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25. And friends, this verse is worth your trip to church today because I guarantee you that this room is full of people who fear man. I guarantee it. And this is what Proverbs 29, 25 says. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And don't you see? Don't you see what's happening to these religious leaders? Jesus has backed them into the corner. Jesus has exposed their unbelief. And Jesus has exposed what they're really afraid of. They're afraid of people. And they're afraid of losing their authority. 
And this misplaced fear is what led them to question Jesus. And it, what, it is what leads many people to question Jesus today. And the question for all of us is really this. Will we let unbelief and the opinions of others control us? Or will we submit to Jesus Christ and his authority over our lives? And they were unwilling to submit. So notice what happens. After discussing it among themselves in verse 27, they answer Jesus. I don't know. You tell us. We're at a loss for words. And by acknowledging their inability to publicly pronounce a judgment on John the Baptist in his ministry, don't miss it, they were also admitting their inability to properly question and judge Jesus on the issue of authority. And in response to the chief priests and the elders' failure to render a verdict on John the Baptist, Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. One commentator summed it all up this way. He said, As Jesus well knew, had he given them an answer, they would have only used it against him. They were not interested in learning the truth about either John or Jesus. Their sole purpose was to induce Jesus to again claim Messiahship and divinity so they could have grounds of putting him to death and taking his life. So Jesus' refusal to answer the question of authority posed in verse 23 illustrates the principle of Proverbs 26.4, which says... Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So he met them at their folly, and then he refused to respond in like kind. Now I want you to know in this dilemma that this is a critical point in Matthew's gospel. Don't miss this. From this point on, because the religious leaders reject Christ, he stops teaching them. From this passage forward in the rest of Matthew's gospel, Jesus allows these religious leaders to remain blinded to the truth of the gospel and blinded to their need for the gospel. And from this moment on, you can study the rest of the gospel. Jesus will only speak woes, warnings, and condemnation to the religious leaders. They were truly in a dilemma of epic proportions. Now, we not only see the dispute and the dilemma. Third, we see the description in verses 28 to 31. And Jesus says to them, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now notice what happens in this passage. After addressing the question of authority, Jesus followed up his conversation with the chief priests and the elders with three parables. And they're so pointed in their meaning that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 21, verse 45, That when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. No kidding. This parable is directed straight towards the religious leaders. And the following two parables after this one are directed straight to the religious leaders. And while these parables are distinct from one another, placing all three of them together in succession emphasizes the impact and the importance of the message that these parables contain. And so in this first parable, Jesus describes two contrasting responses to the gospel. Do you see it? And in so doing, he gives the religious leaders another opportunity to bring condemnation upon themselves. Now notice in verse 28 and in verse 31 how Jesus begins and ends the parable. He begins it and he ends it with a question. Do you see it? What do you think? 
That's a question directed straight to the religious leaders. And at the end of the parable in verse 31, the other question, which of the two did the will of his father? Now, in this parable, the vineyard represents the nation of Israel. And the two sons represent the two classes of people in the nation. The self-righteous religious people and the publicans and the sinners. Notice in the parable that the first son is the one who refused to go and work in the vineyard. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And Jesus says in this parable that that son symbolizes the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Those who had been living in rebellion against God's commands and God's ways, but who eventually repented of their sins and believed in Jesus and believed in John's message of repentance, and they exercised faith and they came to Jesus. The tax collectors and the prostitutes represented by the first son. You'll notice the second son, the one who said, I go, sir, but did not go, pictures Israel's leaders, those who had professed allegiance to God, but they never intended to repent, and they never intended to believe. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible teaches that when John began his ministry, the religious leaders showed great interest in his message and in his work, but they refused to humble themselves and they refused to be baptized by John. While the non-religious crowd believed and obeyed John's words, they confessed and repented of their sins and they were baptized. Now, don't miss the point of the parable. Every parable has a point. And the point of this parable is simply this. Jesus is denouncing insincere profession of faith. The religious leaders were skilled in hypocrisy. They had a Ph.D., and like the second son in the parable, they were quick to speak of their sincerity, evidenced by all of their religious activity. But in the end, they refused to recognize Jesus, repent of their sin, and believe in him and bear spiritual fruit. They had an insincere profession. And so now Jesus is moving to the climax. So we've seen the dispute, we've seen the dilemma, and we've seen the description of the religious leaders. Finally, in verse 31 and verse 32, we see the denial. <clears throat> Notice what the text says. They respond to Jesus's question in verse 31, and they said, the first and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Do you see that? You did not believe him. <clears throat> but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So in verse 31, the religious leaders gave the only possible answer to Jesus' question regarding the parable that they could give. The first one, the first son, responded the right way. And though their answer to the parable was correct, the religious leaders' words condemned them once again because they refused to recognize Jesus and his authority and his ministry, and they refused to recognize John and his authority and his ministry. These religious leaders claimed to obey God, but their actions denied that he had any place in their hearts and in their lives. 
They claimed to be longing for the Messiah. But when Jesus showed up, they wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, they wanted to take his life. Charles Price, in his commentary on Matthew, argues that the point of the parable is not rhetoric. The point is their response. And he writes, listen, this is so powerful. Like these priests and Pharisees, it is possible to reduce Christianity to little more than the correct usage of theological language and concepts, so deceiving ourselves that because we speak the language, we've experienced the life. That's the point. You can dot every I and cross every T theologically. You can know all of the church lingo and language. And your heart can be far from God. You can profess all kinds of things with your lips. And your life never show evidence of your profession. And my dear friend, you need to look no further than the religious leaders in this text. They knew theology better than anybody but Jesus. And it never translated into their life. All they were was a bunch of sinning eggheads. That's it. They could have written Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. But they had no spiritual life or fruit. And lest you think that that can only happen to the religious leaders of Jesus' day, oh, my dear friends, it happens every day in the days in which we live. Our churches are full of people who know the language but have never been changed in their life. It's possible to be so close to Him and yet so far away Because it's all in your head and it's never translated into your life. And at the end of verses 31 and 32, Jesus brings the parable to a conclusion by applying it to the chief priest and the elders. And you have to know, friends, that his words to them deeply pierced their lives. Well, how could you make a statement like that, Pastor? Oh, it's simple. In the eyes of the religious leaders, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were the lowest of the low. They were the lowest of society. The tax collectors were merciless. They were extortioners. They were traitors to their own people. They were hated by everyone. And the prostitutes were the epitome of immorality. And the religious leaders had no category in their life that tax collectors and prostitutes would ever be a part of the kingdom of God. Oh, but on the other hand, the chief priest and the elders, they considered themselves to be the elite. I mean, they wore the best clothes. They had the best positions. They had all kinds of power and all kinds of authority. They claimed to serve God wholeheartedly. And they were convinced that God was utterly pleased with them. They had it all upside down. And to prove that, look at verse 31. Jesus says to them, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you do. Could you imagine if you were those leaders and heard those words come out of Jesus' mouth? And Jesus was able to say that to them because they were willing to acknowledge their sin. They were willing to acknowledge their need for God's mercy, for God's grace, and for God's forgiveness. While the religious elite were content to remain in their self-righteousness, puffing themselves up in their pride. Now I want you to notice in the text in verse 31 that Jesus uses the phrase before you. It doesn't mean that these unbelieving leaders would eventually enter the kingdom. 
it emphasizes God's reversal of man's formula of salvation. It's what the Gospel of Matthew has been teaching us passage after passage, that the last will be first and the first will be last, that the prostitutes and the tax collectors will enter the kingdom before anyone else. You'll notice in verse 32 that Jesus further emphasizes his point, reminding the religious leaders that John came to them in the way of righteousness. Here's what he was saying to them. John the Baptist was a godly man. He was a holy man. He was a righteous man. He was a spirit-filled man sent from God to preach to you and prepare the way for me. But notice what the text says in verse 33. But you would not believe him. They were skeptical of John and his ministry from the very beginning. And in the Gospel of John chapter 1, the Bible even says that they sent a group of priests and Levites out to question John. They were so skeptical of him. And do you know what Matthew records in his Gospel? When they sent this party out to question John, don't miss it. Listen to it. It summarizes their unbelief. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, this is how John responded to them when they came to questioning him. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, my translation, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and it is thrown into the fire. How would you have liked to have been those religious leaders that day, seeing John ministering and preaching and baptizing people look up at you from the Jordan River and say, y'all are a bunch of snakes. Who told you you could come down here? Go repent and show me that your life has changed. Just don't tell me with your words. Show me with your life and then come back. And I'll baptize you. Boldness. And you know what Jesus' commentary to him is? You wouldn't believe a word he said. Jesus also says in verse 32, do you see it? That even though the religious elite did not believe him, the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed John. And as evidence of their sincerity, after they were baptized... For the repentance of their sins, in Luke 3.12, they ask John, the tax collectors ask John what they should do next. Because their profession was evidenced by their life. And in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew makes clear that among all of the people that John was baptizing, there were prostitutes who believed him. Now notice how Jesus concludes this parable at the end of verse 32 his summary of it he says to the chief priest and the elders and even when you saw it you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him do you know what he was saying to him and even when you saw john down at the river preaching and even when you saw the holiness of his life and even when you saw all the tax collectors, all the prostitutes, all the lowest of society lined up to be baptized by him, you did not believe. And even after all of them were baptized and they began to live changed lives, you refused to believe the power of the gospel that changed them. You rejected God's messenger, John. And you rejected his message. And you rejected the changed lives that came through that message. And you have rejected me. And you have rejected my message. Therefore, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom before you. The religious elite had been exposed to the full light of the prophet of God and even to the greater light of the Son of God, and they refused to be 
moved. They had heard the message of the herald of the king, and they had heard the message of the king himself, and they refused to listen. They refused to believe. They had witnessed the power of John, and they had witnessed the power of Christ, and they stood unmoved. And so Jesus will never teach them again. They have been judged. It's a reminder, friends, that when you've been exposed to the light, there can come a day when the light is turned off. So what do we do with this passage of Scripture? Well, in closing, I have five applications. Number one, like the chief priests and elders, our questions of God often expose the true condition of our souls. Their questions expose their unbelief and their fear of man. I wonder this morning, unbeliever, what your questions of God expose of you. Application number two. We need to learn from Jesus' example in this text. And we need to learn from Peter's words in 1 Peter 3.15 where he says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so I ask you, friends, Christians, do you step back from questions about your faith? When one of your coworkers asks you questions about your faith, do you retreat in fear? Or are you ready to engage in a conversation? And don't miss the subtlety of the text, Christian. You don't always have to give an answer. You can follow Jesus' example and ask a question. And listen. Do you engage? Do you speak up? Do you ask questions in return? Or do you shrink in fear? One commentator observed, to force opponents to examine their own presuppositions through questions is an effective way to share the gospel. Jesus thought so, and I concur. Ask questions. Engage. Don't retreat in fear. If you have the hope of Christ in you, what is there to be afraid of? Application number three. This parable reminds us. Oh, please listen carefully to this, friend. This parable reminds us that anyone can come to Jesus through repentance and faith. If the lowliest of society in Jesus' day, tax collectors and prostitutes, could come to Jesus and find forgiveness and find acceptance and find new life, you can too. But you say to me this morning, Pastor, you just don't know everything I've done. You just don't know my background. You don't know the weight of my guilt. You don't know the weight of my shame. You don't know what keeps me up at night. God would never want to have anything to do with me. God could never love someone like me. God could never forgive me. I want to say to you this morning, dear friend, that if you're telling yourself that God could never forgive you, what you are really saying is that Jesus' work on the cross was not enough to deal with your sin. That your sin is so bad, you need someone and something more than Jesus. And I will remind you this morning that Jesus said when he hung on the cross, his very last words, it is finished because his death was enough to cover your sin. Furthermore, 
you're saying that Jesus' authority that has been given to him from his heavenly Father to forgive sins applies to everyone's life but your own. That God can give, forgive everyone in this room but you. That's what you're saying. And I'll remind you this morning to look at the cross, dear friend. And there on that cross, see that Jesus is the one who took the punishment for your sins upon himself so that he could forgive you and extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to you and save you from your sins. Would you not believe in Jesus today? Would you not confess and turn from your sin in repentance? Would you not trust that what Jesus did on the cross in his death and in his burial and his resurrection, he did for you and it is enough for you. It is enough for you to be forgiven. It is enough for you to be accepted. It is enough for you to be loved. Jesus paid it all, all to him you owe. He can cleanse you and forgive you today. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, if you'll turn to him, he can give you the forgiveness, the acceptance, and the love that you've been searching for and longing for and have never been able to find satisfaction. Application number four. This parable reminds us that it is never enough to make empty promises to God or to claim to believe. What matters is a life of devotion that confirms the profession. A life that is devoted to loving God. A life that is devoted to worshiping God. And a life that is devoted to serving others. It's the point of the parable. There is no place in the kingdom of God for an insincere profession of faith that does not translate into a changed life. There is no place in the kingdom for that. Listen carefully to what Daniel Doriani said. He said, in almost every church, there are pretenders. Oh, that is so true. Pastors rarely know who they are. Can I insert something in parentheses? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we're so burdened by the people under our care in the flock who claim Christ but have no evidence of Christ in their life. They're fruitless. We don't always know. We can't see into your soul, into your spirit, but we can see your life. And there are pretenders. There are people who profess and have no change of life. And listen to me, I'm saying this with all the love of my heart. I've been here almost 20 years. If you don't know by now that I love you, I'm not sure how I can convince you. There's some in this room who are pretenders. You say it with your lips, but there is no translation in your life. Would you hear your pastor this morning? And the burden that he has for your soul. That you would no longer be deceived. And you would stop playing the game. And you would come in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ before it's too late. Pastors rarely know who they are. But the Lord knows. And he will reveal the truth to all who are willing to hear. Oh, I believe right now in this very moment he can reveal to you right now your spiritual blindness and your spiritual death apart from Christ. Why wouldn't you stop pretending, friend? Your eternity is at stake. Why would you play the game? Application number five. Unbeliever, do not deceive yourself by thinking it's okay to be like the first son and disobey God only to go and serve him later. 
there are many people today who think that they will live for their pleasure and they'll live for their desires now and later they'll get a little more serious about their life when they get older. But I want to remind every single unbeliever in this room this morning of what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches clearly that today is the day of salvation. That if you hear his voice today, you should not harden your heart. You should come to Christ. And I would remind you this morning that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. How tragic would your life be if you wasted the best years of your life living for the devil living for your sin, living for this world, only to find that you waited too long to repent and believe because your life has been demanded from you by God. It happened in Scripture. Jesus told the story of a man who was so wealthy, all of his barns couldn't contain him. And so he said that he would go out and he would build bigger barns to hold all of his possessions. And listen to what Jesus said in his commentary on that. You fool. Do you not know that your life is required of you this day? Oh, unbeliever, you live as if your life is in your hands, as if you're in control. And I would remind you this morning that the God of the Bible, the God that we have come to worship and serve and praise and honor and lift high in your presence, is a God who is sovereign over your life. And your days were numbered before you ever breathed the first one. And he holds your life in his hand. You are not in control. You are not. And it is possible that you could waste your life and find no place for repentance. Why wouldn't you turn from your sin today and believe in Jesus and live for him while you're young and live for him the rest of your life until you're old and full of gray hair or no hair? Why would you not do that? Why would you not? Listen, the time to get right with God is now. There may be no tomorrow. Matthew has made it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and that he wields all authority in heaven and on earth. And you can lovingly, willingly, trustingly submit to this authority and to this king. Because he is good. He is kind. And you'll never find a king like this one. Let's pray.